0: Diving into data, diving, diving, data, diving into data
1: with T.C. Riley. Hello, hello, hello again, everyone, and welcome into another episode of Diving into Data. I am your host, Big Data, T.C. Riley. Welcome, welcome. How are we doing out there? We are now into the month of March. Spring is just around the corner. Things are warming back up here in Texas, which is lovely. Hope that wherever you're at, it's also warming up and it's beautiful as well. Got an exciting episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about economies of scale and the data around economies of scale. And with me today, I have a very special guest, one of my team members here, David Heidinger. How are we doing, David?
0: Doing good. Hello, TC. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Appreciate you joining. Um, David is our solutions engineer here at MarketScale, but Dave's a smart guy. He knows data. He knows economics. He uh, also knows these two topics quite well that we're going to be covering today as we dive into economies of scale. And those two topics are going to be one really kind of textbook use case of economies of scale, and then one that you think would be, but actually isn't. And these are two things very, very near and dear to my heart, beer and Girl Scout cookies. Are they near? I believe they're near and dear to yours as well, David. They
0: are near and dear to my heart. And we're just coming out of the Girl Scout cookie season, so it's like a very topical thing for me right now. Absolutely. We're running out of thin mints.
1: I can still taste them in my mouth, but yes. Ah, oh, good stuff. But we're excited to dive into this with you guys today. So sit back. Relax. Grab a drink if you choose to do so. Let's dive into some data.
0: All right. uh, So to kick it off, we're going to talk a little bit about economies of scale, just make sure everybody's on the same page. Uh, It's a pretty fundamental economic principle, especially in market economies. And it's the concept that as a firm or an industry goes larger, that they get certain synergies and benefits from their size. Uh, Those could be technical, right? So if you have a large capital investment up front with high fixed costs, the larger you go, the more you can produce, the better it is for you to have that big size to produce that higher amount. Uh, It could be specialization, right? So as you start to do something more and more frequently, you get better at it, you refine it, you have a little bit more technicality behind the whole thing. Of course, bulk buying. So if you have the ability to kind of press that lever and be like, well, no, this is how much we're going to pay for it because we're buying both in bulk and we're one of your biggest supplied customers. That way people are a little more uh, willing to work with you when it comes to that kind of a price. Uh, Marketing, of course, is a big one. As you start to try and reach to a larger and larger audience, those costs can be reflected in in the amount of reach that you have. Uh, Risk bearing as things have a downturn, I don't know, maybe a pandemic that affects your your organization. That could be one. Yep. Your ability to ride that out is going to be directly or inversely related to the the size of your organization. Um, Something that they call the container principle is the technical term in the economics world, but it's really better logistics, your ability to ship things because as the surface area increases you get 200% of the volume you're able to have a more efficient mechanism to to move products around
1: literally a container
0: literally a container that's where that's where it comes
1: from I like things that are very straightforward like very that straightforward. very basic for me to understand
0: uh you also get financial right so as you become a larger firm maybe if you go buy a house you might have I don't know, anywhere from a 6% to, a right now, I think it's like a 25 maybe 1.8% interest mm-hmm. rate. But if you're a really, really big firm, banks are willing to give it to you at a much lower rate because they think it's a much safer investment, right? So they're like, oh, Walmart's going to pay us back, so we're not not too worried about it. And then, of course, the last one is external. As the industry grows, you get all sorts of other benefits of just having a larger in- industry. One of the great examples of that is Silicon Valley. People start to co locate, resources start to show up there specifically to support these industries, and so your economy to scale lets you compete better because you have all of these resources literally down the street compared to somebody who's trying to kind of clobber it together from maybe around the world.
1: Well, maybe pre-pandemic. I think that trend might be shifting now, but yes, absolutely.
0: And actually, that, that ties really into our economy to scale and how we talk about this accordion effect that I think is going to come up later is how you start to see a concentration in the market and then certain things begin to change and that market begins to fracture into different parts of a market and you have almost a scattering again where then you have a lot of firms enter the market and then they'll reconsolidate around a different economy of scale somewhere down the road.
1: It's interesting stuff, isn't it? And so, yeah, we're going to touch on that here again in a second and to dive into this. And one thing I'll say, uh, yeah, the, the most basic way when I was actually telling my wife about this last night, I was trying to describe economies of scale. Was not going real, real well. To be fair, the poor lady just had dealt with a two-year-old and a six-month-old for twelve hours, and I didn't have you know a ton of concentration on my boring topic that I was trying to uh, tell her about. But I said, at the end of the day, think about why do you go to Sam's Club instead of just Walmart. That that is the most again way oversimplifying it. Absolutely, but if you want to boil it down into something that everyone's going to understand, it's the reason that you can go buy fifteen thousand pounds of rice at Sam's Club for you know pennies on the dollar. But when you just buy that like one or two serving box at your local grocery store, well, it's it's more expensive in price per unit because y- you buy more, it can produce it cheaper. It's pretty simple. So that,
0: That's it. That's the the summation of it. And when you do that though, when you go to Sam's Club, you're buying in bulk, but you're only buying the one type of rice. They don't have artisanal, organic, whole grain rice that's available to you.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that's going to lead us very well into our first use case here when we're talking about artisanal things and also the mass suppliers And that is the wonderful world of beer. (laughs) Oh, makes makes the hair stand on end here and get so excited when we talk about beer. Um, And so, yeah, beer is a really, really interesting use case for this because, honestly, it's almost a textbook example um, if we look back. And, um, David, why don't you take us away and kick us off into the, uh, the beer world and one that you're also, I know, a big fan of.
0: Sure, yeah. Actually, world of beer is near and dear to my heart specifically because there was a world of beer in College Station that we would do trivia night at every Wednesday night. Uh, so World of Beer, good spot, lots Great of beers, options. all sorts of stuff. You got to have an app to keep track of them at this point. You know? Absolutely. You gotta, just, just too many of them.
1: Untapped if you're looking for sponsors, give us a holler. Just there saying.
0: you go. There you go. Uh, but yeah, beer is a te- textbook example largely because very rarely do you get a entire sector or product that gets to start at a clean slate. Normally, there's somebody that's been in the market doing it for some amount of time, and then there's other entrants into the market. Uh, But thankfully, or maybe not thankfully, I wasn't around, so it didn't impact me too much. But prohibition in the US shut down all legitimate firms. Of course, people were still producing alcohol, but they weren't doing it above board in the way that we think of companies operating today. So you get this clean slate in 1933 when prohibition is repealed, where suddenly economists can start tracking it with high-fidelity data, right? This isn't, well, we repealed it in 1644, and we've been kind of keeping track of the record since then. No, 1933, we knew what we were doing. We were aware of these principles, and so people were paying pretty good attention to it. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of those numbers that relates around this, this time frame and from there to now. A lot of this information comes from a paper called The Dynamics of Industry Concentration for U.S. Micro and Macro Breweries by Victor Tremblay and Company over at Oregon State University and then supplemented with some information from the Brewers Association. You can fact-check them, but I'd rather just have another beer, so I don't uh, look too (laughs) deep into those numbers. I'm just going to take them at face value. Starting in 1975, there were 766 identified macro brewers. That's a lot. A lot. By 2005, that number had dropped down to 20. That's not very many. Not very many. And by 2019, it's somewhere between 6 and 10, depending on how you draw your boundaries about what you're defining as a macro brewer.
1: Fair enough. Uh, that's an even smaller number.
0: Yeah. So you've seen this massive decline from 1975 to 2019. And lots of people won't call it a decline. They'll, they'll say it's a concentration in the industry. Consolidation. Consolidation no. of massive macro brewers. Uh, and, and a large part of that is because of economies of scale there are only so many people that can compete in the marketplace and as that firm begins to become larger and larger those economy of scale effects kick in and because it's largely a commoditized good your american logger is your american logger it forces other people out of the marketplace because they can undercut their price
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's what what you see. And again, you probably are thinking, uh, you listener of like, oh, yeah, I know a couple of these macro breweries. I bet you back in 1970, if we asked you to list 600 plus, you're going to have a little more trouble with that
0: one. Right. And it would largely be regional, right? So it depends on where you're located that dictates what your American lager or pilsner or beer of choice was or wasn't.
1: And I I can't, a little unrelated side note here, I can't go through a beer segment being someone with family from the Pennsylvania uh, area and not give a shout out to America's oldest brewery the fine folks at Yingling. Continue, David, sorry.
0: Okay, Yingling, there you go. They could also sponsor us. (laughs)
1: Anyone who's open to it, give us a call.
0: Uh, And and so in contrast to that, we have microbreweries. The first one was in 1965. Do you know who started the first microbrewery in the US?
1: Oh, no, I actually don't. I I have a couple guesses that were early, like Schlitz out Longview and stuff like that. But I don't know about the very, very first one.
0: The very, very first. And now I think they might be biased because these researchers are out of Oregon, but was a guy named Fritz Maytag when he bought the Anchor Brewing Company and started brewing his own craft style beer.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: Based in the Pacific Northwest. Northwest. Mm, So yeah, there might be some coastal differences, but that's what they're attributing it to. So in 1965, we had a single microbrewer. He was the single microbrewer until 1977 when there was a second entrant into the market. Three years later in 1980, there was eight microbreweries. In 1985, there were 37 microbreweries. Then in 2003, we see an explosion of microbreweries where we get to 1,492 of them.
1: That's a little exponential there. Wow, that took off. Big growth. the kids say, that escalated quickly.
0: That escalated quickly. Uh, And so you look at 2005, 2003 are the numbers that I've got that are close to each other. The macrobreweries were at 20 And in 2003, the microbreweries were up at 1492. By 2019, that had almost doubled to 2058 microbreweries.
1: That's a lot, but also as you walk down pretty much any street in any major city in uh, America now and run into three different craft breweries, you know, well, okay, well, I I believe
0: it. You'd believe it. I've tried many. The the total, if, if we look beyond just microbreweries, if you include microbreweries, brew pubs, taproom brews, and regional craft breweries, in 2019, we had 8,725 of them in the United States. So yeah,
1: quick math here. Like you're doing one a day. You've you, you started on a new challenge. We'll see you sometime in like, what, 2050 or the late 2040s? Yep. yep. Uh, well, that's assuming we cap today. And I think our graph is showing that, that that's not quite the case. I don't think
0: we're going to stop anytime soon. And what's also interesting is the entrants and levers of the, the marketplace turn over about the same amount every year. So you have maybe 900 people join this year and 900 firms will close that year. So it's not necessarily even consistent numbers that are coming and going, but you see an entire growth in the industry over time.
1: Awesome. And yeah. And so as we continue to look at this again, when we're talking about these economies of scale, um, being able to produce these in bulk, um, just to make sure for anyone who somehow doesn't know anything about beer, when we're talking about these macarons, we're talking about the, and see, I got to check the names because I would have said, you know, Budweiser and Miller and Coors, but actually now I believe it's Miller Coors as a single conglomerated company. Um, It's AB InBev, I believe is the proper name of the Budweiser tree that owns who knows how many actual different uh, product lines there. Um, but these large brewers have such a benefit from a mass production standpoint. And again, it, it's a Sam's Club example. They 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 can afford to shop at Sam's Club. They're making a volume of beer. They have volumes of sales that allow them to um, do the, yeah, the Costco version of buying ridiculous amounts of ingredients and in rice and barley and wheat and things that they need. Whereas that little one of those how many thousand little microbreweries down the street, Well, no, he's getting the, what I'll call the Walmart size thing. He's going to go get that. Um, But that also gives him that opportunity that artisanal rice or whatever we referred to earlier. Yeah. Well, if you're only buying it by, you know, the grain, well, yeah, you can actually uh, probably make that work.
0: That's right. And I think that's where we see the biggest growth in microbreweries is as the macrobreweries began to consolidate, you had leftover capital equipment that no longer fit inside the needs of the very, very large brewers that was being sold at a discounted rate to other people who might have an interest in these things. Some of those people said, well, we'll do it. And while we can't compete on price anymore, we're going to compete in a totally different arena where it's branding, could be flavor, could be taste, it could be a belief in whatever the brewery is about or is doing, right? Many times you go to oh, a brewery yeah. and there's a feel to it, right? A brand, a feel, a uh,
1: a movement associated with them. Right.
0: And because they're not competing with some of like the larger brands when it comes to national marketing costs, they're doing much more of their own. Here's this is our word of mouth almost advertising exclusively. Maybe a little social media tossed in there, maybe they do a couple funny videos, but they're largely just saying we need hundreds of people to come support our brewery every day in order for us to become a profitable enterprise. Whereas, you know, A B inbev needs millions. A lot. A lot. A lot of people. <laughs> a lot, uh, a lot, lot of, a, of beer a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And it's it's really interesting as we dive into that. You touched on something there with kind of the marketing angle and driving towards that. I mean, here at Mark Scale, of course, we're gonna quickly touch on this. Got to. Um as you mentioned, we were talking about this beforehand that's something that's really interesting. And again, we don't want to offend anyone out there. I know I'm going to say this and there's going to be someone out there who's really upset about what I'm about to say, but realistically there's not a difference between Budweiser and, or let's say, let's say Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light. Those are the three big, easy ones. Um, you could throw maybe Keystone or Natty's in there and stuff for you college kids. Um, but, uh, there's not really a difference you, you, they're operating almost solely based on brand and price which requires that significant marketing budget those wonderful beautiful horses that gallop across your screen every Super Bowl you need to associate the Clydesdales with Budweiser they want you to think about that when you're standing in the aisle they want to be front of mind because it's real easy because again and I, I'm sorry for whoever's offended by this when Bud Light, Miller Light and Coors Light are all the exact same thing for the best most part um, and that is not great in my personal opinion side note um when you're standing in the aisle, you're looking at the display, you're looking at the probably like, again, the 24 pack, another a, a little miniature version of this economies at scale. You don't usually buy the craft beer and the 24 packs or the 30 racks. Um, but you're going to look at the lowest price. You're going to look e- either. You have a bias coming in. You're a loyal brand member and they're absolutely people out there. Those are the people I just made really, really mad. Um, or you've been very influenced by the marketing. Their marketing has been effective. They spent millions and millions and millions of dollars So that when you walk in, you are thinking about Bud Light or Coors Light or whatever it may be. Um, And on top of that, there's not really much else to differentiate. You're probably going to, at the end of the day, say, okay, well, this one's $3 cheaper. And beer is beer. And they do this. And that's what's so interesting about what craft breweries have done is, as you mentioned, they don't operate in those spaces. They don't have to. There, I've my one of my favorite little local breweries. It's literally I can see it out the window of my office here at Market Scale. Is a place called Manhattan Project over in the uh, just across the Trinity in downtown Dallas. Here, love the brewery. Amazing stuff. I think it tastes great and it's different. And it has all those things you talked about. The, their whole theme is Manhattan Project, obviously based on the the atomic testing, everything like that. And like Half lifes one of the Merle Common beers and things like that. Um, but also they differentiate different prices. They are not trying to compete with Budweiser. If I went and asked the the, you know, the owner of some small business stuff, hey, who are you? Uh, who's your target customer? Who are you going after? It is not the guy who wants to just go in once, twice a week and get a 24-pack of beer just to get beer. That's not at all their target market. They are differentiating themselves, again, a little bit with brand and what they're able to do. And notice, again, they're not running Super Bowl commercials, but that does not mean that they don't have a media presence. Um, they're doing something we encourage market scale clients do all the time. They're building their own media channels with the explosion of content and the ability of these small brands, um, even down to individuals where we look at the kind of the influencer tie in here to build your own brand. They've been able to do that online. I love following their Facebook page. They have really cool stuff they share occasionally. And, um, there's some informative stuff they share. There's some more just, Hey, we have these type of beers available new things. Come try them. And if you're an addict like I am of theirs, then I, I immediately run over. Um, but they're not trying to sell in bulk. They're not trying to commit me to buy, you know, uh, okay, we need this person to buy a 24 pack every week for the next 30 years. That's how we make this profitable. That's what, you know, that's kind of what the, the AB InBev is trying to look at um, with their major brands, but Manhattan Project's trying to get a nice little profit on a more expensive beer that, yeah, I'm paying more for that six pack than I would for a six pack of Coors Light or whatever, because it's very, very different. They've exploded in this taste scene and um, people's preferences and consumer tastes and um, interest, I would say, in different beers. There's some crazy stuff out there that look no further than our friend's Martin House over in Fort Worth for some of the weirdest beers you've ever seen. Side note, tried a squid ink and menthol beer once from them. Weirdest thing I ever tasted, but I'm glad I tasted it because, hey, I don't see Budweiser cranking out a squid ink and menthol beer. Do you?
0: No, and they can't because you talk about these economies of scale and One of the things I think is most incredible about this is that you have these large firms that can produce the exact same tasting beer every single time for hundreds of millions of runs. So the beer is being fermented by a yeast, and the fact that that yeast never has any genetic drift or change or that they can keep it to be the same tasting beer today as it will be in a year, as it will be in a year, is incredible. And that's where some of their specialization kicks in, but that's what people come to expect. So they can't pivot to a new flavor, and if they release a menthol one... All of the investments that they put into it, they need to be assured that they're going to be able to sell hundreds of millions of cases over the next five years in order to make back all the money they spent on it. Whereas our good friends over at Martin House, they can make the menthol squid ink run, maybe make a few hundred bottles or cans of it. And then if it sells, they can bring it back as a seasonal option or they can say, oh, that didn't work out too well. And then it gets a little bit of an acclaim as like, hey, this is the last run of it. If you ever want to try squid ink and menthol, you got to have it now because it's going to go away. Coming
1: up. Disclaimer I, I don't know for sure which path they went. I would be willing to bet a lot of money it was that this is the last one result based on the uh, flavor profile. But hey, again, I mean, also the same thing Buffalo Wing beer and Cheeto beer and pickle beer and all the stuff they do. They can do all these things at small scales. They can afford to drift on their ingredients and get pickle juice for their pickle beer and the, the components. I don't even know what all goes into that, to be honest, but I assume it's like pickle related items. Um, but yeah, it, it's okay for them to spend a little bit more per charge, a little bit more per can run this limited series to see what their fans like and don't like. And that pick one's actually a good example of almost a miniature use case of economies of scale. Now they're starting to actually kind of mass produce that stuff. It's become a real big hit. Um, and you're starting to see, I- I'm sure the way that they were purchasing again, I'm just going to say pickle juice. Cause I don't know the right term here, but brine, whatever. Um, they're absolutely probably changing the way they're purchasing that now as that product has grown and that's again this almost little micro use case of economies of scale taking place even within a micro brewery within a macro invi- all right too many M terms. over terms yes there, exactly yeah. but um, it's just really really interesting to see how this works
0: and i'll tell you i think a lot of people get nervous when they see consolidation in the market because they we're always afraid of monopolies monopolies are bad but what we don't have in in the beer industry especially at in micro macro brewing is a monopoly. You have an oligopoly, but they're not really incentivized to cooperate with each other, which is why your keystone will still go on sale down at the, the grocery store in order to undercut the pricing of somebody else. And that's good for the consumer where it gives them the lowest price per good possible for what is effectively a commodity product, your insert generic beer. American Your American beer. Lager, yeah, your yeah. American beer. Uh, and then it also opens up the space for these other companies to try out new flavors, be innovative, try out different brewing styles, mechanisms, canning, bottling, whatever it is. Maybe there's a sherry-oaked, steeped beer somewhere out there that we're going to have to try someday. But that doesn't get there until you have people buying beer at a very low cost per unit that's simple, creating the market for a little bit more differentiation. And that's that accordion effect that that we talked about a little earlier. You have, well, first people just figured out how to brew beer. And then we got pretty good at brewing beer. We've known how to do it for a long time, but then we did it industrially. We were able to produce it at scale for an increasingly decreasing cost. I think we're getting pretty close to a plateau where it's like, well, just the raw cost of the water, water the barley, yeah, the exactly. wheat, uh, that's how much it's going to cost, but okay, fine. And once we got good at it, we said, okay, well, let's let those people compete down to the lowest price possible, and then we're going to go see what we can do. What, what other ways can we push this beyond just price, where we go to flavor? and when they start pushing that flavor again i think the consumer wins because we get to go try all these things where we lose is when you find one that is of your particular taste that you really really love and then it inevitably doesn't survive uh-huh. and you don't have enough money to go invest and make your own brewery just to have that beer produced over and over again man that would be nice
1: but yeah it, that, that uh, you're absolutely right and i almost when you we were talking about this what actually just hit me is you can almost kind of see this maybe um ipas are kind of a unique case here because IPAs are something that, I don't know, let's say 20-something years ago, um, I, I mean, yeah, they existed, of course. Everyone's IPAs have been around a while, but the actual kind of mass-produced side of IPAs, uh, Sam Adams I think came out with one of the first ones, and they were, and Sam Adams is kind of a cool use case here because they almost fit in the middle here. They're the macro-micro brewery. Um, I think they even championed themselves kind of as like, you know, the world's largest small brewery or something, but.
0: Yeah, they're solidly the regional craft brew Yes, of thing. but
1: right. that the regional, it's only the Northeast, but yeah, you can buy it at any we'll store around it here. All over, down, yeah, yeah, exactly. US, if, right, if you'll right. buy it down here, then great. Yeah, we'll sell it to you. Um, but IPAs have become a thing where, again, we, and we won't get into the specifics of the million different variants. We save that for those microbreweries. They're the ones who have, I mentioned Manhattan Project, they have at least like 10, 12 different IPA runs that they've done of just slightly different variations of West Coast and a Hazy and a this and a that. But IPAs in general... Were something that started small, but now you're seeing bigger and bigger brands and economies of scale taking over because they realize there is an appetite for this. This is, this is actually this isn't going to compete directly with the American logger, but it almost has because there have been people who have probably shifted away from having a, uh, again, let's say a Bud Light, and have gone to that New England IPA that they really like at a mass. We'll just say Sam Adams. We'll, we'll stick with them because. Sam Adams has been able to increase and take advantage of economies of scale and can now mass produce this because they know that demand is there, that again, they they their squid ink and menthol um, was much more well-received than the, the actual squid ink and menthol example. And so they've been able to run down this path, create a scalable operation that allows them to mass produce, allows them to drop the price point to maybe it's not going to be as cheap as Bud Light. Maybe it's always going to be a little bit more just given the nature of it and the the process and the things that go into it. But- They're a lot closer than that little, yeah, that one-off, you know, uh, flavored with who knows what from down the street type of thing. So it's kind of interesting to see how it's – it's definitely a spectrum. It's not a black and white necessarily. Um, And as we've advanced, that spectrum has advanced further. Um, And again, then we start getting back into this accordion effect thing that, you know, yes, we consolidated down. In the early 2000s, there was the quick, you know, uh, outward expansion of that accordion, for lack of a better term. Um, We've even started to see actually the pandemic's kind of an interesting element here because you saw a couple little local smaller breweries. um, Some things went out of business. Small businesses across this country have been impacted the last year. Um, And you're starting, you saw a little consolidation. My guess is that's more of a little temporary dip and we still bubble out more. But at some point here, you can only have, there's only so many buildings for there to be craft breweries in the US. And we got to be getting close to the number that there are just around DFW. And we're going to start to see the consolidation again. Where again, let's let's think of a projection here. Um, I'm going to take a stab in the dark that in 15 years, first off, craft breweries are absolutely still a thing. I think they have almost taken a consolidation. I think of the 100 around DFW right now, maybe you have 10 or 12. Um, maybe a couple of those have been a truly a you know acquisition consolidation. Some of them just gone out of business. Um, but we're, we're going to see that accordion effect at some point, if we haven't already, start to kind of pinch back in from that total volume perspective.
0: Well, of course, because the, the actual fundamentals of brewing beer don't change. So you're still going to have the economies of scale effects that are going to play into what are now the microbreweries moving into regional brewers, where if they can buy their pickle juice in bulk, they can produce more pickle flavored beers that if the market has shown there's an interest in that flavor, that's going to continue being produced. I think IPAs are a great example here. IPAs are quickly becoming almost their own market where there's too many IPA makers. People are going to start consolidating, well, we can make an IPA that's this amount of bitterness, so everybody is going to buy this one, and it's going to reconsolidate down until we have now ipa makers competing for the lowest price point possible no longer trying to be most dramatic flavor or mix in right
1: and then uh and again and and all this to say definitely we give a shout out i think we're both fans of some of the little guys out there um and uh even some of the fans of the little guys that have become big guys uh near and dear to my heart shiner bach and the shiner brewery down in uh south i guess it's kind of Southeasty texas there south texas um and it, it You see, it's just this continuous wave um, and all these different types of beer and everything are on the same thing, but almost all of them fit the, if you go sit in economics class in college and they go over economies of scale and they show you the graphs of supply and demand and the change in the market and stuff like that, almost all of them fit it to a T. And that's what's really so interesting about it is that for something that, if you ask the average beer drinker these days is so particular and different, it's unique and it's an exploding industry, this, that, and the other thing, Yes, absolutely it is, but the economics of it are almost exactly the same as we saw 50, 60 years ago when the Budweiser started acquiring all these little things to consolidate them into the behemoth they are today. It's just, it's a really cool case study. So. Anything else you want to add to wrap up our beer section here, David?
0: Nope. That's the beer section for me.
1: Awesome. Well, with that, we are going to take a quick break here on Diving Into Data. And when we are back, it's time to do another favorite that's also terrible for my waistline, Girl Scout Cookies. We'll be back. Welcome back to Diving Into Data. Man, not going to lie, kind of want a nice cold uh, bottle of beer after that first segment, but we're in working hours right now, so we probably shouldn't do that, huh?
0: It is 1245, which means it's 445 or 545 somewhere in the world.
1: It's always 5 o'clock somewhere. Um, but instead of getting ourselves in trouble, we will pivot to another favorite of ours here, a unique use case we're talking about economies of scale that um, if you look at some of the peripheral information around it, you'd think, oh, yeah, it's following exactly what Dave and TC were just talking about here with the uh, the breweries and the the brewing scene of beer. However, there's some weird stuff in this one. And that's why the reasons we want to specifically talk about it. And that is the world of Girl Scout cookies. A very, very interesting use case. So um, if you don't know what Girl Scout cookies are, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Go ahead and skip the rest of the episode. But for those of you who actually know what we're talking about, uh, again, this is the time of year you're probably actually longing for them as you're listening to this because those uh, lovely little girls are no longer standing on the corner outside the grocery store and you're down to that last... uh, Last sleeve of Thin Mints, trying to figure out how long you can keep them in the freezer.
0: Oh, do you freeze your Thin
1: Mints? I, I do. Yeah. Then my wife got me onto that, and uh, that's a... I
0: know it's very common. I'm not. A, I'm not a frozen Thin Mint person. I do like using them as a substitute for like a cookies and cream milkshake. So you just Ooh, throw yeah. some in the blender yeah. with yeah. the ice cream. So like cold is okay, but I don't, I don't do the frozen thin mint. I know it's common, but like the
1: mint chocolate chip kind of shake type of
0: thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah.
1: That, that, that's totally fair. And to be fair, I, I'm a weirdo. I, I, I'm almost ashamed to admit this in a public setting. My favorite is the shortbread, the trefoil is like the the OG cookie. Really, it's actually, my favorite. That's my go-to. If you give me, tell me, I can only have one Girl Scout cookie. That's what I'm going with. I know that might be. I'm
0: Samoa for life.
1: Okay, that's okay. It, my, that Samoa's and Tagalongs from the wife's other favorite, so we typically have a couple of those boxes. Tagalong's, Tagalongs
0: hard to go wrong with, though. I still don't think that their peanut butter to chocolate ratio is what it should be. Like for the two ingredients that they're using there, it really should be a much better I think the fine folks at cookie. Reese's have done a little better yeah, job at exactly, double balancing it. Exactly,
1: exactly. They've set a hard precedent in that market. So <laughs> anyway, believe it or not, the segment isn't just about me and uh, David's cookie preferences. But um, again, getting back to our economies of scale, um, just set the table here. Um, what I'm really talking about is uh, the actual production of these. So we're not even going to really fully dive into the... Economics of the sales and everything. We could do, you know, episodes and episodes about this very unique use case. Something we touched on that we're not going to dive too deep in today um, is even uh, David. You mentioned how Oreo actually literally changes their production outputs um, and their selling expectations um, uh, at this time of every year, kind of in that January, February, March period, knowing that Girl Scout cookies are going to be the breadwinner when it comes to cookie purchases, and that's that's amazing when that is. So what that is, is that that's Sam Adams setting Budweiser's market and telling, you know, Budweiser saying, "Mm, we can't really compete here with uh, what Sam Adams does with their spring IPA or whatever we want to call it. Um, So we're going to actually slow down our production, which is crazy for some of the size of the uh, companies that make, again, the Oreos and Chips Ahoy's of the world. But what you've seen in the Girl Scout cookie area um, is again, uh, when Girl Scout cookies started back, I think it was like the early thirties. Um, they were home baked. This was literally like a, your local Girl Scout would bake cookies, you know, maybe with uh, the help of her family, um, and would sell them and would make money for Girl Scouts, you know, a very, very basic kind of fundraiser. You still see bake sales left and right across the U S great thing. And again, something TC can never resist, which my waistline absolutely reflects, but then they went to a corporate structure. They went to, we'll call it the corporate bakeries, the commercial bakeries. And they went that route to kind of get them some more standardized as they took off popularity. Hey, we don't necessarily want every, you know, little Susie in every little town making her own variety. Let's standardize this a little bit. We can uh, use economies of scale maybe to uh, get the prices down and uh, make it a little bit more profitable endeavor um, and let our girls focus on the um, what we actually want them to, the business aspect of this. And we're going to touch on that at the very end, why I actually think Girl Scout cookies are such a cool initiative and effort, um, within that organization. But, um, so Are you
0: saying that Girl Scout cookies started off in microbreweries? Um. Micro kitchens? Micro kitchens, micro yeah. Micro if you will? Yes,
1: I'm not sure that, I hope those little girls weren't also brewing beer. Um, I mean, hey, well, teach the, their own. The, yeah, but... in the
0: early 30s, I know it was kind of the wild west out
1: there. I, again, yeah, prohibition was kind of, it was ready to fall. And Whoever I, could I, brew was brewing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, no, they were too busy with the, down at the, uh, still with dad making the shine. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you
0: know where the original girl scout cookie came from
1: i do not
0: muskegee oklahoma the so first there was... and
1: only time that anyone has ever given a shout out to muskegee oklahoma well there's that awesome country song too but that's uh, uh just the one yeah just one because th- and that's that's all muskegee gets <laughs> um that's an interesting point now i know i did not know it started uh, in so our,
0: our neighbors to the north my point there is that they very well could have been making shine still okay well, well and
1: as in, in still today. Right, yeah, 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 <laughs> still today. But
0: now it's like apple flavored and wood smoked.
1: Yeah, again, yeah. It's artisanal. The, the craft moonshiners are right, taking right. over. Right, um, right. But as they went into this corporate environment, in the late 40s, there were 29 different bakeries making Girl Scout cookies. By the 60s, that number is down to 14. Hmm, this seems to be following a pattern we recently uh-huh. discussed. Then by the late 70s, for the sake of continuity, they're down to four. Again, we're, we're following a pattern. By the 90s, we're down to two. So, what's the natural progression here? We should go to one, and that's where it gets weird. We should go to one. <laughs> you can you can keep saying it, but it's not going to happen. So, yeah, what the setup is now, if, for those of you who might have wondered before, especially anyone who's either moved or traveled at this time of the year seeing the Girl Scouts, and you walk up to the Girl Scout table uh, uh, Girl Scout table for selling the cookies and think, Man, I really want my ex. Maybe it's my do si if you're uh, in certain parts of the countries so or there's different types they have different types of lemon cookies and you know, it's oh they have the Savannah Smiles and everyone, I love those little powdered sugar the ones.
0: Savannah smile is superior Ooh. to the lemonade in every way, shape, and form. Without a doubt. That's hot not take. even an argument. There it no, is. That's
1: not hot. That's just a that's fact. Just a... <laughs> um But you might wonder, okay, yeah, I went and visited grandma, um, you know, for the weekend though up, you know, it, maybe it was literally just a couple cities over. Maybe it was a couple states over and they're selling different cookies than, uh, now I still recognize the Thin Mints. I still recognize the Trefoils and, but half of these are different. That's weird. Do they just get different things here than we do? And the answer is yes, but it's much more complicated than just like, well, okay, maybe every city or every troop has their own thing. There are tr- two, as we mentioned, two, and we stopped at two. There is ABC Bakers out of Richmond, Virginia. There's little Brownie Bakers in Louisville, Kentucky. So again, I told you there's two, I say there's one in Kentucky, there's one in Virginia. You probably think, okay, yeah. So maybe like Midwest and West coast gets the Louisville one and the Virginia covers the East coast. They kind of have two big regional things, a little weird. They don't have more you know, alignment there, but Hey, you know, that's okay. Well, yeah, that would make sense, but no, no, that's not it at all. Um, Maybe the weirdest looking map I've ever seen in my life when we were prepping for this show is the distribution of those two bakeries around the United States. Um, locally here in home, Dallas and Fort Worth, two completely different bakeries. Over here in Dallas, I believe that we have the ABC and over in Fort Worth, they have Little Brownie Bakers. I might've flipped those two, but we have one and the other. So literally driving across the DFW Metroplex, you're entering a different Girl Scout cookie world. And again, you can get Thin Mints in both, but the cookie enthusiasts will tell you they're a little bit different. They're a little smoother in one. One's a little mintier and crunchier. Um, and I, I haven't taken the, I haven't done enough research. I eat them too quickly to distinguish between the two personally. Um, but that's because you know I love cookies too much. But what we really have seen is that across the country, even specifically like the city and the county, L.A. County out in California, is different than nearly the entire rest of the state of California. So. My initial inclination for this, when you think about this, the first thing is why, why haven't they consolidated down to one? Why haven't the Girl Scouts truly just unified this? It seems like a, a pretty, you know, standard move to kind of consolidate this down to a single a producer. And again, given how profitable these are to the tune of $800 million a year in cookie sales, it's a lot of money in cookies. Um, you would think that, okay, well, why don't they just make an investment and let ABC, you know, take the reins or get these companies, to out, whatever they, the ABC and uh, little brownie Baker, This is all they do. They make these cookies pretty, almost year round for this two month little stretch here. And,
0: do they produce them year round?
1: I believe they do. Yeah, they, that's so,
0: crazy. I would have thought that they would have to have like a like a big ramp up period where they. So train. they do. They, oh, okay. They,
1: I think it's a they keep the lines flowing. You know, you you drip the pipes when it's freezing outside, gotcha. but you don't have them on full blast. And then um, into winter, they yeah they crank, crank that dial to eleven and they make it happen. Because, um, yeah, you, I mean, there's cert- I believe actually the thing I read was there's one or two of the types that store much, much better than the others where from a freshness perspective, there's not really a difference in a six-month-old cookie and a six-week-old cookie. There are other ones that are very, very much – and if you've ever left one kind of cracked open in the pantry there, gone back a couple days later and thought – that's not quite the same. You know which probably which ones I'm talking about. They
0: probably freeze the Thin Mints right there on That's site. That's exactly it. Yeah, flash yeah, freeze them yeah, like some yeah. fruit.
1: Cookieception, beerception, beer-ception, now cookie and and what,
0: <laughs> what I think is so weird though about the distribution of the bakeries is like normally there's some rationale or like explanatory factor, right? It's east coast, west coast. It's regional differences from where it started. It's across the Mississippi, to the east of the Mississippi, to the west of the, north or south of the Mason-Dixon line. This one seems pretty arbitrary. And as we talk about it, my best guess is that it aligns with different troops, that like some troop got in good with Baker A at some regional conference. And so then they said, well, they're going to be our supplier. And then as they got consolidated, those people were bought up in kind of piecemeal fashions that wasn't as nice and organized as we would like it to have been.
1: And you are very, very, very close. You're one step too far down the thing. It's not by troop. It's called regional councils. There are 112 of them nationwide, which is kind of like your local district for lack of a better term of Girl Scout troops. Um, And each one of them gets to choose who they contract with. Not only that, even weirder stat or kind of fact for me, each of them negotiates separately for the purchase of these. There's not standardized pricing from these bakers. Each independent council negotiates their own contracts based on their volumes with the ABC or with Little Brownie and they get to choose which one they're doing it with. They're only allowed to do one. Their entire region is set to only do that one. But They set their own deals. They do whatever they want. They pick the one they want to go with. And it just makes no sense. We're talking about economies of scale as to why this is the case. Again, you mentioned logistics wise, it makes no sense that it would be profitable to have LA have something different than San Diego and Orange County have in every other part of California. There are trucks being shipped with Girl Scout cookies just to LA that drive through, you know, the badlands of the other bakery for days on end through Nevada and California to get to the the safe haven of LA for their cookies. And that's just really odd that that's the way they've gone with it. And maybe not that even that the girl scout organization has said that they want their each kind of region. Uh, There could be plenty of reasons for that. And I don't even think that's a problem, but the fact that the bakers themselves haven't with this independent pricing model that it's profitable for, let's say I think like ABC, um, to be in LA, whereas, uh, you know, Bakers uh, is all around, the little brownies are all around the place. It's uh, it's weird that the market hasn't corrected this, even if the rules and guidelines of the Girl Scout organization haven't. It,
0: it's weird. It's almost as if like the cookies aren't good enough to to have a preference, right? Like there's an even split where people truly like It's not that they're not good. The cookies are all good, but that there's not one that's dominant over the other cookie flavor. So while I might like Savannah Smiles, there must be somebody else near me but out there that likes Lemonade's more that keeps this from being just completely dominated by, well, whoever sells the Savannah Smiles is like the baker that we have to go with. Like you would expect those regional differences to pop up.
1: You would think that, again, in your specific use case, I have, I think someone should go check on the mental well-being of that person who doesn't like (laughs) saying smiles more. But anyway, that might be a little... uh,
0: You're going to get the the guy who likes Millers and Lemonades to come talk to you about your Savannah smiles and yingling use, right?
1: I'm going to have someone who's really... A couple of little people out there really mad right now, and we appreciate you listening anyway. Thanks. Um, But... Uh, so again, this is it's a really weird use case. So I tried to dig in more to the economics of this, just to try and understand more and more. I dove pretty deep. The only other thing that they really talked about this changing market. And again, I I'm more of what my focus was was, okay, this was the decision that's made. This is the way that they went with this. It's again, it's how has the market not done more of a natural correction around this or kind of just influence people to the point that l a says, it's just, you know, the prices that we can get with them because of the logistical challenges of getting us a cookie, it just makes sense. We got to flip here. Um, even maybe with that, yeah, that guy that loves the, the Savannah Smiles, lemonades more,
0: you know, uh, in charge of this well, decision. He'll find a way though, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the internet will make sure that he can get the cookie that he wants. Oh,
1: absolutely. And that's one of the things I actually touched on there is so direct sales are become a much bigger thing. Back in the day, it's um, something I used actually – my parents used to tell me. I used to remember my parents – Um, the coworkers going around the order form Mm -hmm. and getting your orders and stuff and you get your cookies a month later, the Girl Scouts have tried to heavily distance themselves from that model and do only direct sales. Um, they've opened up online sales and they've only, they're trying to do all direct where they pretty much the Girl Scouts every mid January or whatever their troop is going to get your set amount of cookies that you order. And you're responsible for the direct sales and all that. So maybe you have some troops out there that are around the holidays starting to kind of piece together some estimates and stuff like that, but more... Um, again, another one, not only they negotiate their own rates, each troop, or I'm sorry, not troop, my apologies. Regional council. Each regional council is responsible for the forecasting of their cookie sales and the management of that. They have a little help on the buyback process. But yeah, it, David Singh has a shocked look at his face because it's really weird the way that this has happened.
0: Well, because now not only are they not taking advantage of economies of scale, but there's this whole data aspect that we should probably talk about into the diving into data where past and in- Future, you know, forecasted sales would probably be far more accurate if you started to consolidate all of that data. Because I know here in DFW, Fort Worth and Dallas are in like different regional councils. I don't know the Girl Scout history behind that, right? But you have people that are maybe one street, next street. It's almost like the school district thing where you don't really understand how they made the line. But those people probably should have their data lumped together. And because the regional councils aren't sharing that data with each other, it's not. And I have to imagine that's got to make the forecasting so much more difficult. You'd rather have a larger end, right? A bigger sample size is Absolutely. going to make this a more accurate forecast.
1: And it's really, again, to keep down that Fort Worth example. So if uh, those of you familiar with DFW, Arlington's kind of smack in the middle of the two. Yeah, 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 So you have people in Arlington, which I would imagine is probably kind of where close to where that line is. If they go to the grocery store that they turn left on the highway to go, they're going to get one thing and right, they're going to do the other. And they kind of arbitrarily decide based on coupon specials. Uh, the. How are you forecasting accurately based on the number of people who are doing that with these weird divides? And again, if it's a west and east of the Mississippi, well, great. We have a, a there's yeah, a geographic
0: boundary that's the, that the person in this. St.
1: Louis and then uh, Illinois on the other uh-huh. side of the river uh-huh. or whatever. OK, well, we can we, we can account for that. We have a large enough sample size. But when we're dealing with your regional council, um, which probably is relying on your troop for some of this forecasting in some capacity. Um, how how does this work? Again, th- these are questions I don't have answers to. These just it's it's a weird one. Um, we need
0: the Girl Scouts of America to reach out to us to help us. Understand yes, help me
1: us understand this because you guys have absolutely figured out cookies. I'm not 100 percent sure that I mean. Well, you know what? Who the heck am I to say? They're selling 800 million dollars a year in cookies. They're outpacing the big boys. Sometimes there are years where there are more Girl Scout cookie sales than there are Oreo sales for the entire year. And I mean, in Oreo, you know, it's a it's a year round staple, and the double stuffs and the Halloween and Easter varieties and all this jazz. And that month and a half, six weeks, give or take, of Girl Scouts cookie sales surpasses the entire year. Just nuts. But
0: Now, I did read in doing a little bit of research on this. Somebody had a theory. I thought it was a pretty good one, that the product that Girl Scout cookies sell aren't actually the cookies, but it's the permission to go ahead and buy that many cookies, you know, six, ten months of cookies all at once to store in your pantry for whenever you have a hankering. It's, well, I'm doing it because I'm supporting... This entrepreneurial spirit in young women, I'm doing it because I'm supporting the Girl Scouts of America. And by that being my rationale, I don't have to feel bad that I just spent 200-some <laughs> dollars on six months' worth of cookies. Whereas when you buy from Oreo, you're like, I guess I'm supporting Nabisco, which I think is owned by Mondelez. And like, you don't even know who these companies are. But with Girl Scouts, like I helped her. Heather, that's who I was supporting this <laughs> exactly. year.
1: Exactly. And that's a, it's an absolutely good point. And it's just it, – it's – it's just, it's odd. Uh, there, there's so many weird variables and factors within this one that um, again, it makes for a very interesting economic and data use case. And, and I want to touch on, um, as we kind of are wrapping up this part of the segment, um, something you just hit on. And that is, um, one thing I want to call out is that I think the Girl Scouts do an awesome job with this, um, and it, but it's not about the cookies and it's not about the cookies to them either. And I think maybe that is truly the root cause of this. Um, the Girl Scouts have talked about how um, this is not about selling cookies. It's about enabling young women to get an entries into the business world and get a, a familiarity with this. Um, they push this really hard. And actually one thing I read, it's actually, there's some guidelines that the girl, the girl scout, whoever the, you know, the young lady is, she should be initiating every sale. So, Hey, just saying the next time that, you know, coworker Bob walks by asking who wants cookies or, Um, As you're walking out of the mall and the girl's sitting there and I kind of quietly and shyly sitting there and the mom, you know, is chasing you down to buy another box of uh, Tagalongs. You turn around and tell mom, hey, I'm happy to support you guys. I love Tagalongs also, so I will. But I need your daughter to come say this because according to the Girl Scouts America, I should be dealing with her. She is the sole proprietor of this uh, operation, ma'am. So you go ahead and throw that out and see how that mom reacts. And I'll let you go ahead and test that one. Um, But just really, really interesting. And again, I think it's really, really cool that um, because the focus is the educational component almost and the the fundraising component, the um, uh, the connection to the business world that these girls probably in, frankly, in our country, it's probably better than a lot of other parts of the world, but still um, we don't do a great job getting any young people necessarily exposure to business as much as we probably should and could. Um, and especially young women in our country have probably been, you know, disproportionately impacted by that. So this is a really, really cool avenue that for a long time has been very successful in this. Um, And I read a cool stat that there are hundreds now of female CEOs around uh, the United States and major corporations that got their start in Girl Scouts. And almost every one of them will tell you that they got their introduction to business through selling Girl Scout cookies. So it's just – it's really, really cool.
0: That's cool. I'm sure there are some confounding variables between like people – young women who were – a part of Girl Scouts at a young age, and like where where that put them in a life trajectory. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, but yes. I do like that we give them the superior product to get their business. Start Absolutely, with, yes. Right, because if if I look at the Boy Scouts of America, I just I, those guys, some of them are quite loud. Like they are very forward with their their entry into business, but they're just their popcorn's no good. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> or, or yeah, it's like guys, what, what are
1: you going to do that the, I have a hard time justifying spending the extra 60 cents for Orville Redenbacher over the generic brain. Cause it's, it's a corn kernel that's going to pop. Like there isn't a, there's not a whole lot to this folks. Um, and then, yeah, you throw in the boy and it's like, yeah. And again, and, and, you know, maybe you kind of, well, I don't want to say guilt, but you know, you're, you're uh, you based on the, uh, you know, the charitable nature of it to buy a couple, you know, packages or tins or whatever they're selling. Um, but yeah, it's not easy. It's not as easy for them as the Girl Scouts. We've empowered them with freaking delicious cookies. So that definitely doesn't, uh, that's, that, that's not an, uh, irrelevant part of this entire equation.
0: We're setting them up for success.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Which we
0: don't do often enough. So I think it's good that we're doing it in the the early age. I love it. start.
1: Yeah. And so we'll we'll wrap it up with just simply, it's just, it's, it's a weird use case, but um, as we look around, and we'll, we'll kind of summarize the episode with this, um, again, you see this economy as a scale play out. We talked about two very specific use cases, one that fit the textbook to a T, one that it seemed to, and then all of a sudden it didn't at all, and there's some weird stuff going on. But um, I think that's actually kind of uh, – uh, you see that in almost every industry across the world. So one that we specifically talked about was cell phones um, and phone manufacturers. Um, two decades ago, there were quite a few manufacturers out there. There are lots of, yeah, yeah, Blackberry was still, you know, one of the big ones out there. They came in the market, but, um, there were all types of little flip phones and Motorola came in with a razor and, um, uh, the Nokia bricks that, you know, everyone, everyone's parent at some point had, or someone in your family had, um, can't forget the razor. Yeah. That's what I was saying, The, Mi- the yeah, Razer yeah, yeah, came in. Oh yeah. Or the the Microsoft. sidekick. Did you ever have oh, that? Oh yeah. You I, never, I never, I never did keyboard. It. Yeah. It was, it was ooh, ooh. groundbreaking. Um, but what we've seen happen at this point, the market has taken its kind of its toll in terms of, again, and it goes back to the same thing we're talking about with beer, in terms of marketing, in terms of um, functionality, in terms of economies of scale and being able to produce these things now. They're still really freaking expensive, but they they'd would be. do a, a lot though. Yeah, they'd, they'd be a heck a of a lot more expensive than uh, if there were still a million producers out there. But at this point, does anyone have anything other than one of the Samsung kind of note phones or an iPhone?
0: I think what we'd call it is there's a dominant design. I mean, we just listed off a bunch of like the memorable ones. They're like, oh, like that one was fun. And it was, that was the, the prohibition equivalent, like cell phones becoming popular and becoming cheap enough to mass produce for everybody was the entrance into the market. Yep. A bunch of phone designers just started trying crazy stuff because we didn't know what people preferred. Yep. Then... We figured out that we like American loggers and IPAs and they said, okay, great, these are the dominant designs. (laughs) We like large pieces of glass that have high resolution that make it easy for me to watch my videos, check my email, send my texts, sometimes take an actual phone call. A what? Uh, uh, You know, a phone call, that thing where, I don't remember what we do with those anymore, but. You mean like like a video call? Yeah, 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 like a Skype almost, but without video. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm very confused. And you don't have to ask for anybody else. (laughs) when you get the phone call, right? Like do you, you you, and I here at MarketScale, we're old enough to know that like you have to, have to call like a home phone. Of course, yeah. And talk to somebody who might not have been the person you were trying to get a right. hold of.
1: hey, is, is, is Billy available to come play or you know, whatever?
0: And to this day, I still take heat for, I answer my phone, hello, this is David. And people are like, of course it's you. Like who else would it be? And it's like, well, when I was raised, being taught how to answer the phone, it was like, was this is David because- that might not be the person that you were expecting to have on the other end of the absolutely, of the line. but you get this dominant design in in phones, and now we're starting to see the pinching where it's like, okay, here are the kind of your options. I'm curious to see if there's going to be that new differentiation again, where we start to move into well, it's yep. no longer just having the thinnest form factor, and that one got weird, right? It was like, how small can we get the phone now, how and big can we get again the phone? how big can we get the phone because it was no longer an inconvenience to hold the phone in your pocket. It was we want to be able to watch. X, Y, and Z things on my phone, so I need a nice big screen a in order 4K, to uh, ride. Right, display
1: right. here, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's it's wild, and the technology's changing so fast that like it, unlike beer, where the taste for beer and the technology used to make the beer is relatively constant over a half a century, century long period of time. Heck, you could argue sometimes millennia. Based yeah, right. I mean, beer back in the this day is how not, we do it. Yeah, it, right. it, it's Beer, it's a little different, but it's it's beer. It's beer. Whereas phones, I mean, look, we. Thirty years, forty years, and it's
1: I mean, even you the the can model to model at this point of iPhone. It's like right. an entirely new, new. How many new generation. cameras are you gonna have on the <laughs> exactly. back of your phone? That's an, that's I hope there's a consolidation there. We're getting a little ridiculous. I don't know how many little bumps I need on the back of this thing to take a good picture. But
0: they also don't bother me though, right? Like unless, yeah, you don't unless see them, you know, so you're like, like yeah, yeah, whatever. it just looks goofy. But, I will say also, you said phones are getting expensive. If you think about it, 1980, 1990, if you wanted a computer. A phone, a camera, a video camera, all in one device. Like, or if you had to buy all four of them apart, like it's probably running you far more You're in nineteen eighty right. dollars than yes, yeah, so like they're not cheap, but they get a lot done.
1: You're right. It, it the, the price has gone up more for the increased capability and the consolidation of technology within this singular device than it has right. the components themselves or the you know, it's not like the glass costs that much more to go an extra inch or whatever. Um but because, um, yeah, technological advances made that a heck of a lot cheaper for Apple to do now than they did in the first iPhone stuff like that. Just the resolution they're able to accomplish and the chips they're able to make for the phones.
0: I'd be curious to see, and I have no idea how anybody would actually run this, but if we could make the iPhone 1, like the first generation iPhone 2006 or whatever mm-hmm. that was, with today's scale of economy and technical know-how, if we were to say we're going to mass produce the iPhone as it was in 2006 – and there was the supply chain to support that, what the actual cost would be. I have to imagine it's minimal. I mean...
1: Right, dirt cheap, I'd imagine. Because yeah, be, honestly, well, it might be more expensive only because you can't find the components. Well, yes, if so I'm assuming we can. have the supply yes, chain, yes, right? Yeah, it's exactly, like because
0: yeah. every, every iteration of the phone, we just keep jamming so much more technology into it, which is great because I, I like having new technology on my phone, but if you could just go back to what it was and then kept it there, I think we would have seen the price just take a nosedive as we got really good at making all yeah, these components. Yeah, absolutely,
1: and yeah, no, you couldn't watch YouTube, no, you couldn't even always successfully connect to the internet. But yeah, but it, it still functions. As get a, the job though. A phone, right? Yeah, yeah. again, weird, weird, Yeah, exactly. I don't know. That's something you told me about. I heard a rumor about it once. Um, but and again, you see this in other industries. It'll be really curious. And there, when we mentioned um, electric electric cars, I think that's such an interesting kind of use case. If you look at uh, just uh, you know traditional combustible engine cars, um, they followed this pattern where you know, Ford invented it, and then a bunch of different brands came out. It it consolidated. It hasn't fully pinched the way that maybe phones have. Um, maybe it's more actually analogous to the breweries, and you know, uh, six to ten big ones out uh-huh, there, or whatever. Uh-huh. Um,
0: and with many name changes, right? Because as they oh, consolidated, yeah. you're like, oh no, this is this one of this one. Uh-huh. Chrysler,
1: Dodge, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, Ram. Okay, Ram's its own thing now. We split
0: off. Uh, Fiat got thrown in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh I think. yeah. No, now, yeah, now yeah. the
1: whole thing's owned by Fiat, and it, it, it's yeah. So you've seen it, and I think. Uh, if Again, if you want to watch this play out over the next, let's say, 15, 20 years, watch the electric car industry because, um, as you mentioned in the past, it uh, the biggest players right now in the electric car space, um, there's one exception. Otherwise, it's almost all the big manufacturers you know. You're buying an electric car from Ford, from Chevy. Um, it's their technology. It's their version of it. Maybe it's not the best out there. The one outlier, Are you the weird about one, Elon? yeah, our buddy my Elon, my boy Elon, yeah, he does. Uh, he's done some weird stuff with Tesla, and yeah. um, it'll be curious to see if almost Tesla is the exception to the rule. Um, again, and Tesla hasn't done anything that and Nikola is another one out there. There's uh, one starts with an R, there, Riven, Rivian, Rivian, Rivion yeah, or whatever, Rivian? yeah. yeah. Um, there are actually hundreds of electric car companies out there. Every once in a while, you read about one that's a coming out with this or a prototype uh-huh. for this. Like they get
0: gobbled up if they're any good.
1: Exactly, and they consolidate. Tesla's kind of that that one. You know, that there is. There's always room for a new entrant to the market. It's just it has to be. They have to come in with the bang. And maybe you need a CEO who's a little different to do that. And
0: uh... and you can't really be a micro car manufacturer, right? No. Like the, the the barriers to entry for automobile manufacturing, especially with like the regulations that you have to pass to have a safe automobile are so much higher than just having a sterile beer that right. you've been able yeah. to produce, it, right? You have
1: to not kill anyone with your beer, and right. it has to – it doesn't have to be good enough to be no, like doesn't enjoyed. No, it not have to taste it, good. It just
0: – yeah, it has to be safe, right? Yes,
1: and if you get that cleared and you can get through, well, if you're in Texas, you have to jump through the TABC hoops, but that's a different story for a different day. Um, But, yes, uh, cars have so much, so many more regulations around them, so that's going to add another, different factors to it. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see. Again, I, I'm curious. Are there one or two other ones that pop up? I, I feel pretty confident at this point. I think, I mean, we won't get into how overvalued Tesla stock is right now. That's a different story. But Tesla, I, I feel pretty confident it's going to be a very successful, profitable company. They've finally gotten their production, as you're talking about, uh, up to an economy of scale that they can actually produce these, get them to people. It's not just no, you know, the hey, come to the the you know the showroom that we have one in every city and see the one Model Three that we have in the entire Southwest, and you know you can't have it yet. You can order it for 2023, but but it's here. You can you can look at it. Now they've gotten to the point they're rolling these things off the production line. They've actually they're kind of coming over the hill there in terms of making it a profitable endeavor for them. Are there gonna be others that do that? Are they just gonna be consolidated? Are we gonna be back down to, you know, are we gonna see a quick little balloon out and then we're gonna accordion right back in? That's probably my most likely guess. What do you think?
0: Well, and we'll we'll modernize the Ford quote. You know, you can have any Model T as long as it's in black. You can have any electric vehicle as long as it's a model three. Yes, exactly. Because like that, that's what you could have, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Now there's more out there and they're coming out. I think what will be interesting for the electric vehicle market and what I'm going to lightly call the alternative substances market, like the legalization of pot probably at a federal level where these people start manufacturing it, they both have people in the market that care about how they do. So beer companies are going to be concerned with how the pot market does. Because you might have people who drink beer that when pot becomes legal, they quit drinking beer and they switch to pot only. And you see this with AB InBev's purchase of exactly different there's a, there's marijuana a reason facilities the... and R&D, all this stuff, right? But they really mess up this economies of scale thing because they could almost flood the production of, of one thing over another yep. that doesn't allow it to, to kind of grow and collapse unhindered. So I, I don't know. It's going to be tough to see what happens. And the same thing for electric vehicles, right? Where you have these... Kind of entrenched large automobile people who have access to large amounts of capital, regulatory influence, manufacturing facilities, yep. and specialization that can then actually drive what the future of those things look like. It's not really the unimpeded market that the the beer market was in the nineteen thirty three or to right. nineteen seventies, where it was just everybody's just trying to brew beer, or the phone market, where everybody's was just making beer. Right, exactly. Making phones. With phones, I mean,
1: yeah. maybe phone people make beer too. I'm not going to judge them, but no, I think that's a great thing. I think there's a ton of parallels we're going to see between, again, the cannabis industry. The biggest investors are the alcohol, uh, the the alcohol industry, because they realize that those are those are kind of a you know there's some elasticity between those and kind of the trade off uh-huh, for uh-huh. the end consumer, um, especially as the cannabis industry continues to become more and more widely accepted. Um, in the same exact way that the manufacturers of the oh again i'm gonna call them the combustible engine i sound like i'm talking about like something from the 20s but um you know the traditional gas powered cars diesel gas powered cars versus electric vehicles and how both of them these 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 budding industries no pun intended there um are going to uh (laughs) (laughs) sorry y'all that was Um, good that was funny um how they're going to be influenced and not naturally grow because these stalwarts and very in almost the older version industry, mm-hmm. um, are the heavy investors and in driving it and consolidating it. So yeah, we might not see that natural accordion effect. We might be kind of held between some you know barriers here uh, because of the the fact that these are the biggest ones. And again, frankly, it's smart of these companies to do. They're 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 protecting themselves in the future and they're identifying in 50 years what might be the bigger market and for almost kind of again that what we're going to call quote unquote the same product mm-hmm. in some regard mm-hmm. the same recreational beverage activity you do to relax or whatever and what you use to transport yourself around the city they understand that that's going to change and they're getting ahead of it in these industries so it's going to be interesting how technology will kind of change this over time if we look at the 1900 case study and then in 100 years you look at the 2000s case study it might be very very different and i think technology and just the way of the world and the global economy um, are going to really influence it so it's going to be interesting so
0: Hopefully we're around to see it all.
1: Uh, I hope so, man. You're telling me. Um, as long as I don't drink too many beer and Girl Scout cookies, that'll help my uh, uh, give, give me a chance. So. Got
0: to blend up those Thin Mints, put them in a milkshake. You'll be good to go. <laughs> All
1: righty, folks, we're going to wrap it up here for this episode of Diving Into Data. David, thank you so much for joining me, sir. I love the conversation.
0: Thanks for having me. Ton of fun.
1: Absolutely. And a uh, little teaser here uh, for those of you in the Market Scale Network. Um, you might be hearing David a little bit more in one of his own series coming soon. Don't want to uh, drop any bombshells, but uh, keep keep an eye out for it. I think it's coming. So. Um, with that, we appreciate you guys joining us and until next time, see
0: ya.